This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening into the podcast today. Today I'm pleased that we're going to have part one of three interviews that we've had with Craig Douglas. If you've been in the firearms training business for any amount of time, you've no doubt encountered Craig Douglas' name or his company, ShivWorks. He's got an illustrious career. Steve Moses, our own Steve Moses, is going to tell you about his experience if you don't know it already. And speaking of Steve Moses, it's thanks to Steve's sterling reputation in the firearms training business or industry that we've been able to bring guests like Craig Douglas to you. So thank you, Steve, for that. Our conversation today, we're going to start with a great conversation about managing unknown contacts. A lot of uh, Craig's work is on what he calls soft skills or verbal jujitsu. That's your ability to be alert and recognize uh, suspicious folks and then have the skills to negotiate that ambiguous situation before it turns violent, before you ever think about having to go to the gun. Part of that conversation is going to talk about managing dynamic distances. That's how you uh, protect your space when you're out in public and how you create uh, boundaries in your mind, boundaries that you can use to articulate um, how an aggressor has uh, uh, infiltrated your space after the fact, how you know when it's time to increase the level of uh, threat when it comes to dealing with unknown contacts. Uh, we're going to talk about getting loud without getting angry as part of your verbal jujitsu skill set. And then I love this idea as someone who's got about a billion Spotify playlists. We talk a little bit about developing a playlist for interactions with unknown contacts. You have to think about what you're going to do, what you're going to say, how you're going to behave before you have these situations so that you've got a script that you can go back to. So let's get into this conversation. I'm joined today by Steve Moses, of course, Don West, as always, and our very special guest, Craig Douglas. Thanks for listening. Well, it pleases me to introduce uh, Craig Douglas to our, our listening audience. Uh, I met Craig, I believe, 2003, 2004. I actually hosted him for a class called ECQC, Extreme Close Quarter Concepts. Was it Concepts, Craig? Yes. Or, uh-huh. Okay. Uh, that was in uh, Ennis, Texas. long time ago, I'd uh, heard of him. Uh, I wanted to study under him. Uh, what I saw was unlike anything. That I've ever done. It completely changed the way that I've looked at him. I've been a dedicated student of his ever since then. I anything I can, any opportunity I have to train under Craig or listen to what Craig puts out, uh, I do that. A lot of how I conduct my life and how I teach today, uh, I base it on what I learned from Craig. So it's just a real honor for me to bring this guy onto this podcast and introduce him to the people that don't know about Craig yet. So he's got a very extensive background. Uh, He was an undercover narcotics agent. Uh, He was a SWAT team commander. 
he I, I'm, I'm just I'm just kind of glossing over some of this stuff, but he has seen some things from a perspective that not a lot of other people have seen and his ability to capture what he has learned and be able to put that in presentable, digestible chunks and present it to other people. It's just awesome. So, Craig, it's it's a it's an honor to have you on this podcast. Steve, it's an honor to be here, man. And uh, just reflecting on uh, when we first met, you know, my first thought is, wow, where did that time go? You know, <laughs> uh, almost almost 20 years, you know, it's uh, it's amazing. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm really happy to be here with your audience. Yeah. So your website and your program is called Shivworks, Shivworks.com, right? Yeah, that's the uh, that's the brand I operate under, and Shivworks has been a uh, brand of training and products globally for 20 years. I teach in 48 states, 11 countries outside of the U.S., all four branches of the U.S. military, five federal law enforcement agencies, and I've had a, a standing contract within a small section of the intelligence community for about the past uh, seven years. So one thing I read about the Shivworks program is that you're taking interdisciplinary approach to self-defense. And right, your goal here is to give every student empty hand skills of an MMA fighter, the firearm skills of a USPSA grandmaster, and the verbal agility of a stand-up comic. And I love that description. I want to ask you a little bit about that interdisciplinary approach because I think... Uh, for a lot of folks who may be new to self-defense, they may purchase a firearm, get a concealed carry permit. That firearm becomes their solution to self-defense. And you mentioned there the verbal agility. That's that's part of the toolbox. Tell me a little bit about that interdisciplinary approach. That's a that's a big part of of what I teach. You know, many people reference what I think of as verbal agility, and as importantly, social literacy, commonly under the umbrella of soft skills. And, you know, when when instructors mention those terms, quite often there's no, no other explanation of, of what that actually means, much less specific tactics or, or training modalities. So people can learn that stuff. So that's what I've tried to do, because at least in my professional experience, I have found the, those to be as important, if not more so, than marksmanship and gun handling. Uh, as as a, I spent, a, I had a 21-year law enforcement career. 11 of those were spent in narcotics. Two of those were spent as an undercover officer. And, um, you know, I, uh, I know how many people I shot in my career. Uh, I have no idea how many people I almost shot, shot but chose not to. I have no idea how many people I taught out of shooting me uh, on drug deals. So I, I know the potency and power of a well-placed word, and it's as potent and powerful as a well-placed shot. So, I, and, and I think... If one chooses to carry and take the responsibility of carrying a gun in public space, then the onus is even greater that people have parity in those other skills like good language, good verbal agility, good social literacy, hand-to-hand uh, -hand skills if necessary, 
so yeah, that's that's what we mean by interdisciplinary is that um, we we have all these problem solving modalities for us because as you've noted, many people who they start their journey, they they get the pistol, they start carrying it, and then you know that's the only tool, if you will, they have for solving problems, and then every problem looks like a shoot problem. And the most obvious problem where the firearm's appropriate is when you encounter someone else with a firearm who's threatening your life, right? And I think a lot of folks, when they imagine a self-defense scenario, they imagine something like that. An armed robber, an armed burglar, somebody they're approaching where everything's cut and dried. And in our experience, Don, when we look at cases that are in the news... The ones that involve an armed defender defending themselves against somebody with a firearm, those are never controversial. The, the defender is never facing any legal scrutiny from that. But it's when an armed defender faces someone who ends up being unarmed, at least not traditionally armed, doesn't have a firearm, and then they use their firearm in response to that perceived threat, that's when the real trouble starts after the fight and, and the, the legal analysis of their decision to use deadly force. And we call that the armed defender's dilemma. And I think when you open up self-defense to this interdisciplinary approach that includes social literacy, I'd love to have you talk a bit more about that, the verbal skills, and even having, uh, what do you call it, empty fist, <laughs> empty hands training, different scenarios, um, that helps negotiate that dilemma. Well, we, we all know that the right to use up to and including lethal force does not require that the other person be armed with a deadly weapon. It only means that they pose an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death. That The disproportionality of it all comes in when people don't understand that people can be lethal with their hands, with their fists, with something they grab that's sitting right next to them and in fact pose an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death which allows for and may very well require the use of deadly force. So I think there's a bit of a distortion the way the general public sees these things that come out and as a, as a result, in my personal view, having tried a few of them, it's a harder case to defend when you've used a deadly weapon against someone that's at least portrayed as not having a deadly weapon. So the analysis may be a little different. You may have a harder time explaining why this person, in fact, did pose that imminent threat. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, you don't even have to have a scratch. You only have to have the basis to respond with the use of deadly force that's, that's justifiable. Uh, obviously, we've talked about and experienced problems where the person has no other skill, no other choice, no other appreciation for that middle ground when responding to someone who is apparently unarmed and either goes to the gun too quickly, at which point they've then committed a crime, or perhaps uh, too late, and then they're already seriously injured or, or dead. And so it, it's I'm so intrigued to hear the, the sorts of things that Craig is going to tell us about that space in between, uh, sensing what's going on, how you best prepare and defend yourself. And then, of course, I'd love to hear what happens when you are, in fact, 
intertwined with someone who has physically attacked you. You may have a gun, but you may not even be able to get to it in that situation. It's a hard, hard stuff legally, and I imagine uh, even harder tactically to know what to do next. And Craig, maybe that starts with uh, identifying and assessing a potential threat. It does indeed. And, you know, I developed a strategy template, if you will, for enhancing a person's awareness, uh, avoiding a problem if you've spotted one. And if you've confirmed a problem that's ambiguous as indeed being hostile, deselecting yourself out. And, and that's the uh, process, if you will, of managing an unknown contact. That's the language I use. You know, and I'm specific with that. I don't I don't call it dealing with bad guys, you know, because part of the problem is, you know, ascertaining and understanding, you know, what is and is not a potential threat. So, you know, a lot of people have biases, real or perceived in in just how they observe people. And one of the things I tell tell them is, look, you know, we're we're not gonna make judgment calls on strangers based on how they look if we were being approached by them in places that may be more conducive to a crime than another such as a parking garage or a parking lot it's the right time of day it's the right place that would facilitate a crime against a person you know um we're not going to do that anymore we're going to be we're going to uh, have a baseline for how we interact with people and and we already do that with a population of our uh that, that that's out there we do that with children we don't allow a child when they're being approached by a stranger to make a judgment call on how they look we draw a line in the sand if you will we tell them usually give them a hack right like stranger danger we say something like that which is just just a little sound bite for consistency we want our kids consistently doing or not doing something with strangers. And, and what I tell people is that we're going to do the same things as adults. We're not going to make judgment calls based on how people look. I don't assume people have street smarts. I don't assume people know what bad guys in a particular part of the country look like. You know, I don't assume they know uh, all the tactics and strategies of, of, you know, street, you know, hustlers and armed robbers and that kind of thing. So uh, we, we employ the strategy template for dealing with an approaching stranger, managing an unknown contact that essentially consists of uh, number one, an appreciation for distance and what distance actually means and how, you know, the, the, the mercurial nature of distance and how a single step can have a fairly significant impact on an outcome i do a drill where, where I, I show the implications of that and one of the things i try and hone in people and develop is a, a a really really finely tuned sense of how distance changes and shifts and the analogy i make is if you think about driving in bad weather during heavy traffic you know if you think about 
you know, driving in a summer rainstorm, bumper to bumper traffic, you got this red sea of twinkling brake lights, you're probably very sensitive and attenuated to minor changes in distance. And that's the same lens that I want people holding when they walk around in open space. So once we, we hammer that home, get that across through some visual demonstrations and exercises, I, I start going through the, the three pronged strategy of managing an unknown contact, which consists of the verbal component, uh, the movement required to maintain distance from someone who is approaching, and finally, what to do with your hands. So there's three elements that coalesce and come together in an effort to maintain a little bit more distance in a somewhat socially acceptable way. Uh, so there are three elements of, of muck, and that's that's the that's how we acronym it because we have to have acronyms. Um, there, there are three elements of that that we, we practice. Uh, each element has probably 10 minutes of instruction, maybe on both, on all three. It takes me about probably 30 minutes to go through the entire strategy before I pair people up and let them start working it. That's interesting. And you say about using particularly these verbal skills and the movement skills in a way that's socially acceptable. And we joke about this in this podcast frequently that we, we see a lot of situations where somebody with a firearm in their hand might be quicker to pull the trigger than to say a rude word, right? Or they don't feel comfortable being aggressive verbally. And that's first on your list. And it's, and it's not even, and it's, you know, and, and it's not even, they, it's not even being aggressive verbally, Sean, it's being assertive verbally. So what, what, one thing I'll do is I'll have someone, you know, um, I'll, I'll stand there in class and I'll have my, my assistant instructor and say, okay, let's say, um, you know, I'm a mom in a parking garage. You know, I see uh, this person, you know, 20 feet away because I, I do have good awareness. I don't have my nose in my phone. And as this person's approaching, you know, I understand that, if this person's intentions are hostile, not benign, and they get to a certain distance, my chances of mitigating that have gone down. So what should I say and how should I say it? Well, you know, I'll, people offer suggestions. Hey, ask them what's up. Hey, ask them, how can you help them? And I'll do those things. What's up? How can I help you? And the person continues to just walk towards me until they can touch my chest. It's a stage demo. So what, what's the problem with that? Well, you know, when you say things like, what's up, what's going on, what do you need, how can I help you? Essentially, you're inviting someone into a conversation and average conversational distance for the populace, at least pre-COVID, is right at about wingspan. So if you watch even strangers in public who make a decision to speak to one another quite often will literally close to within arm's reach. So we don't want to do that. Uh, and, and saying things like that, invite people in. And then I'll ask the, the students, what should we say? Well, first of all, what are we trying to accomplish with our language? What's the objective of speaking to begin with? Well, it's to halt his encroachment. So whatever I say, 
should support that. And is there anything else I don't want to do with that person? Probably don't want to piss them off. If they're a benign person that's walking up to ask you for a set of jumper cables, the last thing you want to do is create a problem where there isn't one. So the objectives are binary with the opening salvo of your language. You're, you're trying to halt someone's approach, not create a problem. What I recommend, for at least for the opening, is people phrase a request that's clear in what you don't want them to do and is authentic to you. Here's what's authentic to me and seems to work fairly well. Hey, man, can you hold up for a second? Now, what sells it is my facial expressions, my tone. I, I'm not aggressive. I don't have a war face on. Uh, I'm not particularly inviting. And it's a definitive ask. I am asking this person not to come any closer to me. Okay. It is, it is essentially setting a boundary. It's, it's, a, it's a polite, assertive ask you know, that's clear. And that quite often will work, especially combined with the right kind of movement and the right kind of hand position. And from there, if a person chooses to stop, I may then choose to engage in dialogue. What I'm not going to do is engage in a conversation with a stranger as distance is closing. If we're going to make the distinction from monologue to dialogue and get into a conversation, they're going to stop first. So that that distinction is super important because it maintains the range safety threshold. And what is that range that you feel comfortable at? That the 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 bare minimum is a full step outside of wingspan. That's the bare minimum. If I am close enough to touch you and you are close enough to touch me, right at my my sleeve length, wingspan, whatever, uh, that is the hot zone. And if someone initiates on you within arm's reach and you don't expect it, 10 out of 10 times, you're going to lose. 100 out of 100 times, you're going to lose. So at the bare minimum, the bare minimum and it's quite often it's environmentally specific the, the space that you have in a parking lot is different than the space that you have in a crowded bar you know so but the bare minimum is a, a full step outside of wingspan well and i see once you verbally say hey hey hold up or something like that that's comfortable to you now you've asked them to stop and now there's choices being made right and what you just said is 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 actually not correct Okay. Because that was a tell. That wasn't an ask. Okay, I gotcha. Does that make sense? It does. It's less... Uh, so here, here's the thing. I want to start off with an ask. Confrontational. I, I absolutely want to start off with an ask. Hey, man, can you hold up? If, if that doesn't work, now I'll shift to a tell. Does that make sense? So it, this shows... It, it, and, and here's the thing. And I'm sure, you know, Don, I, I'm certainly not an attorney, but... You know, I, I have a lot of time in courtrooms, quite a bit, state and federal court, depositions, trial, suppression hearings, you know, um, you know, that's articulable. You know, when you if you were to tell 
uh, you know, a jury of your peers in the aftermath, you were to offer an affirmative defense to take the stand, you know, whether you should or shouldn't do that. That's another question. But you were to say, ladies and gentlemen, jury, I asked this person not to come any closer. That didn't seem to work. I asked again because they weren't coming in too fast. They still came in. So I told them not to come any closer. You're showing an effort at controlling this potentiality through focused, precise, gradated language. And I think that's important because each ascension, if you will, in this case, within the verbal strategy template is an additional barrier. Oh, sure. And, and I think you're able to then articulate each aspect of that and why that caused you to be even more concerned, uh, uh, fearful, or however it is that you are managing this person's response to your ask or your tell or whatever it is that it then leads to. One of the things I tell people with the tell is it's super important on the tell to raise the volume up. So when you shift from ask to tell, you know, if your volume is normally at a two, it should probably jump up to a 10. And a good way of explaining this to like police officers is, is or, or military people is it's kind of like a bang without the flash. It should be jarring. It should be startling in volume. Uh, volume doesn't, volume needs to be understood contextually, but also within a vacuum of not being necessarily linked to aggression and hostility. Most people, when they think, I'm going to get loud, they associate that with getting mad or angry. You, you don't have to do that, right? You can, you can still project volume, you know, without necessarily connoting hostility. So if I were to say, hey, man, can you hold up? Dude, can you hold up? Whoa, back up, man. You know, that that bump in volume, if done correctly and it's unexpected, quite often is enough to, to really put back somebody, put somebody back on their heels. Um, so that that's important. And what's interesting about volume and, and raising your voice to people, and I see this in the CCW community, a lot of people don't have a hard time pointing a gun at someone, but they cannot raise their voice. Mm -hmm. So I make people practice doing that. And it's very common, especially with women, raise your voice, get loud. I'm not loud. No, no, ma'am, you're not louder. So we'll, we'll practice that. And then the final part on the verbal side is, you know, we have the discussion about profanity and whether some, whether you should or shouldn't, you know, and, and basically what I tell people is I'm, I'm not going to tell you to use or not use profanity. Um, but I want to have a conversation because a lot of people that teach self-defense skills will say never, ever, ever use profanity. And I can tell you certainly from my law enforcement career, most of that, you know, almost all of it being spent on the street, you know, is that profanity is part of, you know, everyday lexicon. People use it, people understand it. Um, I, I don't tell people to use or not use profanity, but I give them some guidelines on doing so. The first is if you don't normally 
use profanity, now's not the time to start. Because you don't, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to talk tough, right? Because here's the thing. If you're not used to talking like that and you come across as inauthentic, street culture most assuredly will call you out on that. So if you don't normally talk like that, don't do it now. And the second uh, variable is there is try not and be insulting with it. Is there a difference between telling somebody back the fuck up versus back up motherfucker? So in the first example, fuck is like an exclamation point, right? It accentuates my message. And the second, you know, I've, I've insulted this guy. I certainly haven't done anything to, to quell any kind of hostility that may be simmering between he and I probably made the situation worse. So, you know, the, 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 the verbal component of managing an unknown contact consists of, you know, uh, asking someone, making sure that that request is clear. If that doesn't work, shifting from an ask to a tell, bumping volume up as required. And I can always bring that back down, right? If I say, if I tell somebody, hey man, back up, and it looks like that's going to create the problem, I can always bring it back down. Hey man, didn't mean to yell at you. You startled me. I got a kid in the hospital. Just stay over there and we can talk. So not only have I brought it back down, I've made an attempt to create some empathy, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, at the same time, you know, I've given them an out and, I, and I've, and I've made, given them an apology, whether they deserve it or not. So it also, it almost sounds Craig, like you can pre script this in a way that you know, kind of what words you're going to use in what part of this sequence so that you're comfortable with them. You're not struggling, uh, grasping for, oh geez, what am I gonna say now? And, and what else, in the midst of all of this other stuff going on, because I'm assuming that the verbal stuff is one small aspect of the overall assessment of what's going on, because you've got to look at more than just this guy's feet and whether this person's stopping or backing up or, or uh, how, he, how he is responding in the big picture as well. A hundred percent, you know, and that's, that's the thing, Don, we, we practice this stuff and the language I use to describe that portion is I like to, I like to think of it much as we would a playlist on a phone. So if you have a playlist on a phone, like, you know, your, your workout playlist, you have this list of songs that are favorites that you can kind of warm up to that you can kind of, get through some sets too. And then finally you've got like some, some really aggressive hard music so you can get those last few reps. But, but it, the, the point of it is, you know, the order and you know, what's coming next and you're hundred percent correct. We, we must develop a playlist of things that, that you can say that are authentic to you, that satisfy these tactical objectives. And what I do is I force people to do that. I for, and it's, it's, it's interesting because it's it's awkward it's socially awkward training when i have a class of 20 people and i go through the explanation of uh the the, the initial explanation of the criminal assault paradigm as i understand it and managing unknown contact i've been speaking now for an hour and 15 minutes when i cut people loose and they begin to work in pairs and it's interesting to watch you know um 
because it sounds easy to do and like most soft skills you know where we learn these in powerpoint and and pay lip service to them but there's no physical training modality if people don't actually do this interactively then uh the content is not actionable it's not going to come out us just talking about it is not going to do it i must we must engage with each, with each other interactively and immersively to learn how to actually do this and like you know we'll, we'll see people screw up the first time you know even if they know they should start up with an ask a guy will upon being immediately approached say hey man what's up because that's what he's used to saying or hey man back up he starts off with a tell you know so it, it needs as much practice physically as marksmanship it's as important as marksmanship i would i'll be quite frank i would argue that it's more important than marksmanship but the problem is there have been no modalities of training that exist you know because there is no live fire analog there's no dot torture there's no five by five there's no el presidente there's nothing you can do on a range to learn this skill you must have bodies and space and it's simple to do it doesn't require you know um you know anything I've done this in a corn. I've done this in a crop circle in the middle of Kansas before, you know, with a bunch of dudes. So, yeah, it, it, it just requires doing the work. All right, guys, that's a podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. Next time, we're going to continue our conversation with Craig Douglas, and we'll be talking about how doing that work can make you more confident if your verbal skills don't do the trick and you're forced to meet violence with violence. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. And dance by the light of the moon.